to count. We're in a series we're calling Epilogue One Minute After You Die. And I know you get excited if this is your first time at the bridge and say, oh man, I went to this new church and it was powerful worship and, and people were just really nice. And then the preacher got up and said, we're going to talk about death today. I'm so glad I went to church today. I realize it's not our favorite subject. But, you know, when, when all of us are going to face anything, we probably ought to be prepared for that thing we're going to face. Make sense? And so we're talking about Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. We introduced it last week. Some of you are very familiar with it. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Reality is that 99.9% of all cultures of the planet, every religious system in the planet, every culture on the planet virtually, has an afterlife kind of construct in their worldview. I mean, it takes all kinds of forms. In a lot of parts of Asia, it's reincarnation where, where you, you keep trying. If you, if you do a really bad job, you come back as a cockroach next time and, and you may be cockroaches for 10 generations and you finally get to be a good cockroach, you may come back in another form. And eventually, if you do really good, you come back as a cow and, you know, cows are revered. I promise you, I've been to India, cows are revered. If a cow walks in the road and stops, traffic stops and then you don't blow the horn. You wait till the cow goes. They are revered. They're sacred over there. But the hope is that you will keep getting better until finally you reach nirvana, which is, of course, nothingness. Then there's the old ancient uh, crossing of the river Styx, the warrior kind of motif that if you die in battle with honor, then you get to that to get to that place. And then you got the modern warrior mentality that if you're willing to blow yourself up, you get 72 virgins on the other side. I mean, there's just all kinds of constructs about what eternity is like, but everybody on the planet, Ecclesiastes said that eternity is implanted on our hearts. Everybody on the planet knows there is something after this. The Bible is clear that there are only two choices. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to be avoided. That's the bottom line. And you get to decide which one you spend eternity in. In fact, you have to decide now which one in order for it to be determined when your day finally comes. A few years ago, Time Magazine did a survey in the U.S. and Canada, and they came back with, it was actually a cover story of one of their magazines, and it's 96% of the people that they surveyed believe in heaven, and 76% believe they have a good or excellent chance of getting there. 56% of those surveyed believed in hell, but only 6% believed they have a pretty good chance of getting there. Most of them were my high school buddies who all knew that's where they were going and that's what they used to say and as though it was a good thing. But for the next two Sundays, we're going to be talking about heaven and hell. Today, of course, we're talking about heaven and, uh, and I'm going to do my best to unpack for you what the Bible tells us about this place called heaven. Next week, with as much grace and truth as I know how, I'm going to talk to you about this place called hell. Let's begin today by talking about heaven with one thing that the Bible is absolutely clear about, and that is that his ways are higher than ours. His plans and designs are bigger than ours. Isaiah 64, 4, that Paul paraphrases later to the church at Corinth, just makes it very clear it has not entered into our mind an understanding of all the things, here and now and there and then, that God has prepared for us. They're beyond our ability to grasp. Go back even to the Old Testament. Moses, who 
spent that private time with God. When God finally passed by, his glory was so brilliant, Moses had to turn his face into the cleft of the rock. He couldn't even look at him because it was just so amazing, and yet he still glowed for weeks after that. Poor Ezekiel. If you've ever read the book of Ezekiel, this poor guy... It still confuses us to this day, and I almost feel his pain trying to describe these heavenly scenes that he sees, and he doesn't have the words. He doesn't have the earthly language to communicate the heavenly things that he has seen. God comes to him in what to him looks like a whirlwind, and for the next 25 verses, he goes on trying to describe what he's seeing, and 26 times in 25 verses, Ezekiel uses the expression, it was kind of like, or it was of the likeness of, it was kind of like this or that, or it was in the appearance of, it kind of looked like this, kind of looked like that, because he's struggling to find earthly words to describe this divine, heavenly kind of scene, and all he can do is compare what he's seeing in the spirit to what he knows on earth. He finally just says in verse 28 of Ecclesiastes 1, when I saw it, I fell on my face. <laughs> I'm just kind of, this is just so big, so huge, so amazing. I can't even attempt to describe it in meaningful ways. So please, please be gentle with me today as I have the daunting task of describing the indescribable. <laughs> I have the daunting task of telling you what I understand about what the Bible says about this place that cannot be described or understood. Pray for me as I make that attempt. The fact is, the more I read and the more I wrote, the more I struggled to get here, and I pray the Holy Spirit will be the teacher today. Johnny Erickson taught us, some of you familiar with their writings, said if it took seven days for God to create the universe, including the grandeur of the Grand Canyon and the beauty of a sunrise over the ocean, and Jesus said 2,000 years ago I go up to prepare a place for you, then how incredible must heaven be? Another writer said describing heaven is kind of like building a model of the Buckingham Palace with tinker toys and then expecting you to see the grandeur of that palace. Or, or, or holding up an acorn and saying, can you imagine the majesty of a full-grown oak tree? How do you do that? Or holding up a caterpillar and, and then trying to describe a butterfly from the caterpillar that you see. Put it in human terms. If, if you were an infant in your mother's womb and somebody could somehow whisper to you in that pre-birth state, just moments away from birth, but all you've ever known is the darkness of the womb, the silence of the womb, and somehow they could whisper to you just outside, just inches away, there is this beautiful world of rivers and streams and sunlight on your face and wind blowing on your face and you're being prepared for it and any minute now you're going to get into it. If that infant could understand or even glimpse what this world is like, then maybe, maybe we could get a glimpse of what heaven will be. Like, no wonder the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in chapter 2, verse 9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Not just referring to heaven, but to all the things of God, but certainly referring to heaven as well. So pray for me, okay? I'm serious. Pray for me. 
pray the Holy Spirit will be the teacher today because what I've done is I've tried to pull some of the things together that the Bible does say in an attempt to give us a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. And, and my, at the end of the day, what I'm hoped for more than anything else is that you will, you will catch an image of heaven that is so compelling that you will do whatever you have to do to be there. That's, that, that's all I want. I want you to have such a compelling understanding of heaven that you will want desperately to be there. And before we go, I'll make sure you know how to go when the time comes. So I'm going to do my best to describe what heaven will be like. Five things that I've identified in scripture. You probably will have a list of your own if you've been studying scripture very long, but five things that I identified that I'll share with you in the few minutes we have this morning. First of all, we're going to walk in incredible surroundings. John was transported there in the spirit and he got to see things much like Ezekiel did uh, way back when and he used some of the same kind of language that Ezekiel did trying to describe what he saw but with limited vocabulary to do it. So Revelation 21, 10 and 11. And the angel showed me the holy city. It was shining with the glory of God and was bright like a very expensive jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. He wasn't say, he, say, he, he saw a jewel, he saw a jasper. That was just as close as he get to describe what this amazing thing was. And then he tries to describe the immensity of the city, verse 12. The city had great high wall with 12 gates, with 12 angels at the gates. The city was built in a square, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. That's even, that's hard for us to even wrap our brains around what a cube kind of, what I don't know, but I think John's just trying with the language that he has to describe to us the immensity of this place. Those limitations that we have here simply won't exist in heaven. And it, it makes my brain hurt to try to figure all this stuff out. Then he goes back to, to grandeur and beauty in verse 18, 19. The wall's made of jasper and the city's made of pure gold, as pure as glass, gold as pure as glass. The foundation stones of the city walls were decorated with every kind of jewel. He goes on to list all these kinds of jewels that I won't even attempt to pronounce for you. You can pronounce them for me later, but he's just doing his best to try to describe for us both the grandeur and the immensity and the beauty of this place. Then he starts mixing them all together. Verse 21. The 12 gates are 12 pearls, each gate having been made from a single pearl. And the city, the street of the city is made of pure gold as clear as glass, transparent gold, so pure it's transparent. Are you kidding me? I just, reminds me of the story of the rich guy who died and when he got to the pearly gates, he before he got, went in, he said to Peter, you know, I, mean, I really love my stuff. Can you, you tell him I can't bring my stuff with me? And Peter said, no, you can't bring your stuff with you. He said, come on, man. I just worked hard all my life to get this stuff. Surely you let me bring my stuff. And Peter said, well, okay, tell you what, I'll, let, I'll send you back for a week and you can, you can pick one thing from your stuff that's that important to you and you can bring that one thing with you. And so he goes home for a week and he ponders it and he finally comes up with a stroke of genius and he sells everything he's got and he buys gold and he goes back to Peter and said, okay, I got my one thing. And Peter looked at what he had and he said, you brought pavement? You, you, you brought pavement? That was the one thing that was so clear to you and the moral of the story is quite clear. Oh, the moral of the story is quite clear. Oh, the moral of the story, yes, the moral of the story, oh, the moral of the story is quite clear.
clear. If the thing that we consider most precious, valuable on earth is used for pavement in heaven, what must this city be like? Second descriptor is that we'll have these amazing bodies. Somebody say, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, amazing bodies. And not the kind that Beverly Hills plastic surgeons can make for you at big bucks. That's not the kind. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, 21, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I don't know if you've ever watched one of those Discovery Channel uh, uh, specials on botany, but, but I've seen them before. Maybe you have, where, where they put a, a camera right up to the glass on a terrarium and, and they put a lima bean in the middle of the terrarium. And then they turn on time-lapse photography so that it moves very, very quickly. And so you watch the lima bean there, and, and it, it's, it's fresh and green and alive, and then it begins to, to turn a little bit gray, and it gets grayer, and it starts to shrivel, and, and you watch it die. But the very instant that it dies, somehow a, a shoot, a sprout comes out of the side of it that's fresh and green and alive and new, and somehow you know that, that, that it's, it's the lima bean. I mean, it's the same DNA as the lima bean that we've been watching, but somehow it's better, somehow it's more productive, somehow it's even more alive. That's the reality, what happens. Hear, hear me, guys. A new plant has come to life just as the old plant has died, but in fact, it is the same plant. Now, there's not a PhD in botany on the planet that can describe to you why that's the way it is, we just all know that's the way it is. The seed dies, the sprout comes, new life comes, and it's more productive even than it was before. There's no mistaking it. It's a lima bean plant. It's not a rose bush, not a corn plant. It's not a weed. It's a lima bean. Better, more productive, and yet the same DNA, not shriveled, not dry, but fresh and alive. Guys, this body's gonna die away. We talked about this last week a little bit, but what springs forth in that instant will be better. It is better. <laughs> and yes, no more bulging middles and no more hair turning white or turning loose and no more menopausal factory fire things going on inside. None of this, you know, the... None of that stuff will have to be endured anymore. No more arthritic backs or hands, just amazing bodies like his. And if I can get personal for a second, I can get kind of excited about that when I think about it. I lost my dad 50 years ago and uh, this December, uh, and he got down to 115 pounds before he passed. But when I think of my dad, I don't think of 115 pounds of frailty. I see him young and vital and alive and big smiles and worshiping the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to see him again. And I'm going to see all four of my grandparents. And I'm going to see my mom. And I'm going to see my son, Drew. Yeah. And all of them are going to have vibrant, 
alive, productive bodies. Somebody tells you we go to heaven and we sit on a cloud and play harp for the next 87,000 years, you look at them and say, ha, I don't want to go. There's no way I'm going to sit on a cloud for 87,000 years playing a harp. Give me something to do. Yeah, the Bible says that if you're faithful in a few things, I'll make you ruler over many things. Not only will there be things to do that are productive in nature, but there's actually hierarchy. There will be leadership and, and layers of leadership in heaven. There just won't be any selfish bosses to deal with. I can get pretty excited about that when I think about going to heaven. The third description the Bible gives us is that we will think with total clarity. We'll have full understanding. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 says, Now we see as if we're looking into a dark mirror, but at that time in the future we shall see clearly. Now I know only a part, but at that time I will know fully as God has known me. How fully does God know you right now? Just say the word fully with me. He knows it all. He knows more about you and me than you and me know about you and me. He knows us completely, and in that day, we will have the same total clarity. I don't, I don't know about you guys, but, but one of my great frustrations in life has been my limited ability to grasp and understand some things. Don't get me wrong. I'm not putting myself down. I, you know, I'm, I'm educated to death and I made pretty good grades in school. And I'm not saying that I'm not reasonably smart guy, but uh, there are times when people tell me things, and particularly about how they feel. And, and I just, I don't have a clue. I have no idea what they're talking about. Okay, there are times when Kim tells me about how she feels and I have no clue what she's talking about. Any husbands relate here? That's, go, go ahead, wives. You tell us if your husbands relate. Of course we do. We just don't get it. We don't understand. It's because we're looking into a dark mirror. It's so we're looking into a building and the windows have, been, have gotten really filthy and you're trying your best to clear the windows and all you can see is kind of faded images on the inside. There's no clarity in what we're trying to see. But when we get to heaven, all those limitations will be gone. Our understanding will be totally clear. And all that stuff that we couldn't figure out, in an instant, we'll know. We'll say, oh, man, now I get it. <laughs> I understand. Every now and then somebody will say to me, Pastor, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to pull Jesus aside for the first 10,000 years or so and it's going to be just me and him for a while. And, and I'll say, well, I say, you can worship him personally and privately and up close. And they say, well, 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 well yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, truth be known, I actually have that many questions that I want him to answer for me. And I always say, well, he'd be glad to answer any questions you have, but I know it won't take 10,000 years. It won't take 10,000 nanoseconds. We'll walk in on the other side and go, I call it the divine aha. <laughs> No, now I see, now I understand what that's all about. My favorite illustration of that is from many years ago when our middle son, who's in his early 40s now, but when he was a baby, he was in hospital for about 10 days. And, and uh, so Kim was spending most of the time there and because I, I was still working full time. And, and so we were back and forth. And one night I stayed all night and uh, Kim got some rest. And she was doing cross-stitch in those days. You guys remember cross-stitch? Some of you remember cross-stitch. And, and, and they tell me that when you cross-stitch really well, the back looks just as good as the front. Well, I, nobody told me to even pay attention to that. And so I've got the little pattern, and I'm going to spend my night doing cross-stitch. And I created this 
neat little cross stitch that says, untie me, I'm tied up in knots. And so I thought that was really cool. And the next morning, Kim came in, and I, and I very proudly showed her what I'd done. And I just thought, sure, she would be proud of the work that I did. And I saw the look on her face, and pride was not went, went through her mind. It was kind of, ooh, that's the best you can do. It didn't come out of her mouth, but I could see the wheels turning in her head. And then I realized I had shown her the backside, not the front side. And the backside was all mishmashy, different colors going every stinking witch away. And you know what, what, the reason I like that illustration is because that's exactly what's going on in our lives right now. God is building a tapestry of our lives and it is a beautiful mosaic of all of the experiences, good and bad, of our entire lives. He works everything into a pattern for good to them that love him and live according to his purpose that we become like his son Jesus Christ and he's creating this amazing tapestry of our lives. We're just looking at the backside. We get to the other side, we go, oh man, now I see how that fit into that and how that worked with that and why that had to happen here in order for that to happen there and all that understanding will wash over you and this clarity and understanding will come. I look forward to heaven for that reason and for no other reason, but there's a lot more to it than that. We're gonna walk in these amazing surroundings with these phenomenal bodies, with this clarity of understanding we've never had before Number four, we will also relate with complete unity. Complete unity. 1 John 3, 2 and 3, now we are the children of God. We've not yet been shown what we will be in the future, but we know that when Christ comes again, we will be, what does it say? Like him, we will see him as he really is. Christ is, what's the word? Pure. He goes on to talk about how important it is that we make every attempt to live pure in heart kinds of lives while we're here. But I want to go back. What happens when we get to heaven? We will be like him. And what's the attribute John points out about him? He is pure. The reality is that to live with a pure heart is hard this side of eternity. Can I get one amen in the room? Two or three brave souls, it can be hard. Why is that so important? Well, James 4.1 makes it pretty clear. Do you know where your fights and arguments come from? They come from selfish desires that war within you. <laughs> I don't care how saved, sanctified, baptized in the Holy Ghost you are, you're still a human being and there's a war going on in every one of our minds about do I want what I want, do I get what I want or do I, do I live unselfishly? Do I care more about you than me or do I care more about me than you? That's part of the human struggle and that struggle will be over because we'll be like him who is pure. No malice, no sin, no selfishness, all of which are at the root of every conflict we ever have. So what happens to conflict in heaven? It's gone. It goes away. Because we're all operating with that purity of heart. Heaven is this incredible place where we get to live in and with these amazing bodies and we get together with full understanding and in complete unity with the others who are there as well. But even more importantly than unity with one another, we'll be in total unity with God. 
We talk a lot around here about coming to those places of intimacy with God, working toward intimacy with God, praying that God would remove any barriers to intimacy with him. We want passion in our worship. We want intimacy in our prayer lives. We want understanding when we read the scriptures. We want all those barricades removed and gone, and yet it can be hard sometimes. I mean, you tell me if it's true for you. Here's kind of my journey. Just about the time I think I am submitting to God, I'm saying, God, whatever you want, that's what I want. I'll do what you want me to do. And You know, I want, you have total control of my life, my attitudes, my, my actions, my agendas. As soon as I do that, guess what happens? I start struggling with, with what I want to do today versus what I think he wants me to do today. What I think is important today versus what he's telling me is important. What my priorities are, which versus what his priorities are because I'm struggling with my flesh. If you don't relate to that one, how about this one? Sometimes, I'm getting transparent with you here, guys. So, sometimes in the middle of my morning prayer time, I'm praying, I'm talking to God, I'm having this amazing intimate thing with God and something will pop in my head that needs to get done today and I'm afraid if I don't stop and do it right now it won't get done and then I'll be in trouble and before you know what I'm completely I ain't got time to pray I'm gonna have to go I gotta go do this anybody yeah what's wrong with me I'll be in the middle of a worship service sometimes and the spirit is flowing and God is present and the song is going and people are, hands are raising and I see tears flowing and I'm in the middle of it and somebody will come up and beside me and distract me before I know, well, who's that? I wonder why they're so late for church today. I just, <laughs> come get back in here. I was trying to have a moment alone with God before I went up there to talk to those folks. Even worse, some Sundays I'll have an amazing relationship with you I'll get to hug a bunch of necks and fist bunch of bump fist bump a whole lot of people and and uh, and just you know goosebumps on my pimples and arms hair standing up and the presence of God is wonderful things and I'll go home and before lunch is over I'll say something stupid to Kim and hurt her feelings I'm going, I don't know I don't know I, well, I didn't mean to do that I must not be saved Hear me, if you're relating to anything I just said, it does not mean you're not a Christian. It means you're a human and that we ain't there yet. This is still earth. It's not heaven. We've got heaven to look forward to. But what it does is it makes me want to live with a pure heart now. It makes me want to live in unity now. But it also makes me yearn, long for the day that we all We'll be there together. And on top of all that incredible stuff, we're actually going to receive rewards for the service we rendered while we were here. As if that isn't enough, when we ought to be saying thank you to him for what he's prepared for us and done for us, he's going to say thank you to you and me for the service that we Rendered the Apostle Paul, who begs us to be eternally minded, to focus on the eternal, not the temporal. Paul, who begs us to keep one foot firmly fixed in the mission to which God has called us and the heaven to which we are looking forward. And he describes his spiritual journey 
with that kind of balance near the end of his life, here's what he said to his spiritual son Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 8. My life is being given as an offering to God. If the time has come for me to leave this life, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now, a crown is being held for me, a crown for being right with God. The Lord, the judge who judges rightly will give the crown to me on that day, not only to me, but to all those who have waited with love for him to come again. What's he saying? I've lived this life committed to the mission that he gave me, looking forward to the day that we're going to be together in heaven, and now that time is drawing near. When I get there, he's going to give me rewards, but it's not just for me. It's for all followers of Jesus Christ. Can I, can I throw this in? This is free. You don't have to put any extra in the offering. And, and if it doesn't relate to you, just, just decide what you're going to have for lunch today, okay, uh, while I say this. If, if you're here, you're part of the Bridge family, and, and you aren't serving in one of our serve teams or serving in some capacity somewhere else, in a way that's an unselfish giving of yourself. And then you hear me talk about joining a serve team. You hear Pastor Andy talking about joining a serve team. And you say, they're just trying to get us to do stuff because the church needs us to do stuff. Can I beg you to challenge that thinking? If I've learned anything in 50 years of ministry, it is that this church is capable of doing everything that God has called it to do because he's given us the gifted people who can do it. You just have to decide whether you want to be a part of that. I don't beg you to join a serve team and push you a little bit to say, well, where areas are you serving in? Because the church needs you any more than I beg you to give because God needs your money. Why do I do it? Because one day we're going to stand before God and crowns are going to be distributed for the service that we gave. And I don't want you to be left out. I don't want you to get there because you all oh, I gave my life to Jesus. First Corinthians three talks about you know barely making there the flames licking at your backside. Whoa, I made it. Whoa, I made it. No crowns for you. You didn't serve. You accepted Jesus. You're in, but no crowns for you. And for those of you who are serving, and sometimes you feel a little unappreciated or unsupported in the things that you're doing as if no one's noticing, I need you to know somebody's noticing. Even if we fail to say anything about it, even if we fail to say thank you, even if we fail to give you a pat on the back, somebody's noticing. The old story of the missionary that has spent his life in Africa, finally coming home uh, in his retirement years, and he's on a plane, he finds out uh, during the flight that there's a, a high-level politician in first class on the plane, and, and when they land, Sure enough, there's a parade and a band and all that ready to receive the politician, but there's nobody even there to greet the missionary. And in those moments, as he looked out the window of the plane and saw the hubbub out there, the missionary thought, man, nobody, nobody even noticed what I did. And the Holy Spirit whispered in his ear, I noticed you aren't home yet. There's a reward for you. It's coming. Not that we want rewards to be trophies that we put on a shelf somewhere and say, hey, look what I got. Yo, you only got that. I got this. No, remember we're pure of heart when we get there. 
It's going to be far more like the 24 elders in Revelation 4. The 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne and they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Heaven won't be a place to brag about rewards. It'll be a place to take whatever crowns we have and lay them at the feet of Jesus as an act of worship. It'll be I bring an offering and it's the offering of my life to you as an act of worship to you and thanksgiving for who you are in that moment. I can promise you if there's any regret, it will only be I wish I had served more so that I could be bringing more to the Savior in this moment. I love the, the Paul Below song from just a few years ago. I bring an offering of worship to my king. No one on earth deserves the praises that I sing. Jesus, may you receive the honor that you're due. Oh, Lord, I bring an offering to you. And I am the offering. My life is the offering. But the most important question, how do you know that you get to go? Let's be honest, guys. We live in a world where everybody goes to heaven. Well, at least you're in a better place. Are you sure? And you can press them on that a little bit and say, well, so you're telling me that, that people like Attila the Hun and and Hitler and, the, and the, those guys are going to be there. You, you, so, is it, so what makes it heaven if, if some of the most evil people on the planet in history are there? What, what, and you can't, there's, there's no rhyme or reason to it, but the bottom line is clear. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through, what did he say? Me. Hear me, guys, I'm going to wrap this up, but there's only two approaches to heaven. There's only two approaches in all of, of human religious systems on the planet. There is the approach that says if you work hard long enough to be good enough, maybe you'll get in. And the other approach is if you accept God's free offer of grace. Can I tell you that as a pastor, I have the honor of having been at, at more deathbeds than I can count over the years. The difference between those two groups in those last moments of their lives is profound. Can't tell you the number of times that I've been at a deathbed where somebody said, I don't know if I did enough. I don't know if I was good enough. I don't know if I... And there's a terror as they approach the idea of death. And then there are those, like Miss Alice Hassel, who said to me, come over here, Pastor. Lean in close, her family standing around the bed. She said, you know I'm dying, right? I said, yes, ma'am, I know it's close. She said, no, I mean, I'm dying. Yes, ma'am. She said, Jesus is right there in that window and his hand is out right now and he's saying, come on, Alice, go with me and I'm gonna go with this huge smile on her face and I'm gonna go. And I said, okay, God bless you, Miss Alice. Can I pray with you? And I said, 
Thank you, Lord, for the peace Miss Alice had. I left and ran back to the church to take care of a few things, thinking that she would be around for another day or two before I got out of the parking lot. My phone rang and said, Mom passed. Well, she told me she was going. <laughs> Uncle Jimmy Foran, I think I've shared this with you before, but I'll share it in this moment as we close. Uncle Jimmy Foran passed out. He was pastor. He was preaching right up till he died in his mid-80s. He passed out on the pulpit just a few months before he, he died, and when they came to him, he was lying on the floor, and he fainted away, and, and, they, and they came and said, are you okay? Are you okay? And he said, what, what, what happened? And he said, at first time, when I came to, I looked around. I was a little, he said, I wasn't in pain. I wasn't afraid, but I was just kind of disoriented a little bit, and, and then I saw some faces I recognized and, and said, what happened? And they said, well, you, you fainted, and, uh, and so uh, are you okay? And they got him up. That afternoon, he was thinking about it, and he said, Lord, is that what dying for a believer is like? And it's like the Lord said to him, that's exactly what it's like. You're going to go to sleep. You're going to wake up. You're not going to be afraid. You will not be in pain. For a second or two, you may not know exactly what's happened, but then you'll see some faces you recognize that have gone on before, and then you'll see me and you'll know you're home. That's what it's like. The only question is, have you settled it? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the chance to make an attempt to catch a glimpse of what you've prepared for us. Even more importantly, thank you, Holy Spirit, for speaking to our hearts right now. And I pray simply that we would all make the decision of decisions to settle this thing, putting my trust in Jesus Christ. Putting my trust in what Jesus did for me on Calvary. Putting my trust in who he is, what he's done. I want you to do me a favor this morning. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, nobody's looking around. Open your eyes just long enough to get the Connect card. Would you get a Connect card and just put it in your hand right now? I just want you to hold it in your hand. I want to ask you to do me a favor today. Just get a Connect card and put it in your hand. Whether you filled one out or not, just get it in your hand. Would you do that? The Bible says that if you believe in your heart, and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Well, in a room like this, on a day like this, or hundreds of people watching online over the world as well, we don't necessarily have the opportunity to have those one-on-one -on -one conversations. The altars will be open in a few minutes. You can do that here and now if you want, but, but I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I'm going to, without a lot of hubbub, we're not going to sing a bunch of verses of songs and beg you to come, but I am going to ask you to come to this decision point, and if you say, I choose grace over works, then I want you to write grace on your Connect card. Just put your name on there if you haven't filled it out before. Maybe you think, oh, I just don't fill those things out. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Here's your chance to let us know you choose grace. We're going to pray. Choose grace, choose grace.
Revelation 3.20, here I am. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Just pray with me silently or loud. I choose grace. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Thank you for your gift. I choose to follow you. I choose to put my trust in you. I choose to depend on you. I choose to put my faith in what you've done, not what I think I can do. And I thank you for doing it all just for me. Father, you know who's praying, you know exactly what's in their hearts. People that have never prayed a prayer like that before, people have prayed it many times over the years, but here and now in this moment, we're saying, I choose grace. In Jesus' name.